You're listening to the Author Stories Podcast. Bringing you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Margaret Wise, Sherry Brooks, Sheena Kamal, Matthew Quick, JT Ellison, Walt D. Williams, Brad Ford, Corey, Dr. O, Brandon Sanderson, Robin Mom, Ernest Klein, Jim Butcher, Sherwin Harris. Visit hankgarner.com for archives of all the shows. Today's guest is... Well, thanks for joining me again for the Author Stories Podcast, where I bring you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Today, I'm super excited to have David Kep on the show with me. He has a phenomenal new book. It's called Aurora, and this is a book that you've got to have for your summer reading. Uh, if you are not as familiar with David's uh, prose work, I know that you're familiar uh, with stories that he's told up on the big screen uh so many of them too too many to uh to list right now but uh he is a storyteller that you are familiar with even if you don't realize it at the first uh welcome to the show david thank you hank nice to be here david we begin each show with the same question and that question is what is your first memory of wanting to be a writer or storyteller I th- so uh, I, I, there's a moment I can get to, but I I, I went to um, I had terrible penmanship. I went to a, to a, a Catholic, Catholic school, and, and uh, the nuns. Uh, sorry, Hank. I think we have to start over. I'm getting really bad feedback on your end. It, it, it's or is is it still feeding back? Let me see. No, now it stopped. Okay, okay. Sorry about that. That's okay. Do you want to? Do an edit or uh, yeah, I'll I'll, I'll clip go. that out. No no worries. Just just pick up from where you were and I'll cut that out. Okay. I went well. I when I grew up, I had terrible penmanship. Uh, I went to this uh, Catholic elementary school and and the nuns uh, tried it for a few years and then told me to 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 give up. No one would ever be able to read my handwriting. <laughs> <laughs> they weren't wrong. Uh, and my dad uh, brought a typewriter home from his office, I remember, and um, also a little typing table to put it on, you know, like a little metal thing that you could raise or lower. And I remember being about 10 and just sort of banging away at the typewriter. And then I, I thought, well, if I'm if I'm going to put letters on the page, they might as well be words and those words might as well be sentences. So I started to write a very short story about some misunderstood 10-year-old whose nuns were mean to him. And then I wrote stories, a story about, you know, some misunderstood 12-year-old who had to go away to summer camp and didn't want to. And then I'd write stories about misunderstood teenage boys who were uh, misunderstood by the young women that that he loved. And I'm I'm detecting a pattern here. (laughs) Yeah. And I just found it a great relief. It was fun. It never occurred to me that you could do that for a living. Um, it was just a fun thing that I would type at sometimes. Um, and, uh, and then I, uh, when I got older, I wanted to be an actor in high school. I was in a lot of plays and stuff. And But I kept writing as well. And it was at some point during college that I realized you know, I could go on and try to be an actor and hope that people cast me in things, even though I'm not nearly as good as a lot of other people and not nearly as good looking as a lot of other people. Or uh, I could try to be a writer because I don't need anybody's permission to start a story. So 
I think I was around 20 when I shifted my my interests officially. So I've talked to a lot of um, frustrated actors, we'll, we'll just put it that way, um, that have wound up uh, writing prose or screenplays or a combination of both. Um, is, is there a difference uh, when, uh, of course there is, but it, if you could um, talk a little bit about, about what the difference is in in being a part of the collaborative process, like as an actor, uh, to then being the the person that is in control of everything as you're writing the story, um, the how does that how does that difference feel? Well, it's huge. Uh, it's huge. Um, I would also look to the difference in screenwriting and novel writing, um, sure. which is similar to what you just uh, referred to. Um, when you're screenwriting, which I've done for 30, 35 years, so I'm you know, familiar with it. Um, in fact, it was all I was used to for a very long time. When you're screenwriting, you have a lot of collaborators. There is a brief period, if it's an original, um, of, of quiet and solitude where you're making up your story and writing the first couple drafts. Um, then, however, you start to get opinions. And some are opinions of friends, you're looking to make it better. But then there's also the opinions of people that you would hope to collaborate with, the director, uh, people who might buy it, people who might give you tens of millions of dollars to make it, um, actors, designers. There, there's there's an enormous amount of input. Um, I, I like to say that in screenwriting, you're not so much collaborated with, it's collaborated upon. Uh, <laughs> and when I wrote my first novel, in 2000, I wrote it in 2018. So I was already in my mid fifties and had been a screenwriter for a long time, but I'd never tried a novel. And I was just giddy. Um, after a few pages, I realized not only can I do whatever I want because no one even knows I'm writing this. So there's no expectations. Um, but I can, I can write in whatever style I want and, and the tools that are available to me as a would be novelist, are so vastly different from what's available to me as a screenwriter. You know, in screenplays, you you can really only fairly refer to what an audience could see or what they could hear. That's it. Uh, so referring to the inner life of a character is just verboten. There's no way for a director to express it. You can say that, you know, they, the character looks at some flowers and sighs deeply if you want to say that they're feeling wistful, but you can't say he felt wistful and remembered his grandmother. You I mean, you just can't. Right. But in a book, not only do you have complete access to the thoughts and feelings of your characters, uh, but you, you also are, are free to digress. And, you know, movies are relentless. Even, even slow-paced movies still, you know, must bow at the altar of story progression. And novels... You only need a general sense of being pulled along toward a goal in order to to put up with it, because you can always put it down and go have dinner and come back and read more later. When uh, you have written uh, quite a number of uh, original scripts, things that that you dreamt up completely on your own, as well as some uh, uh, what's I'm, I'm 
I'm blanking on the word where where you uh, take someone else's story idea and then uh, you know whip a uh, a screenplay out of that. Um, yeah. What are the do you, do you approach the beginning of those projects differently? Of course you do, because one, you're getting input and, and feedback from someone else about what the story idea is going to be. And the other, you know, things are just organically coming out of nowhere from wherever stories come from. Um, how, how does the beginning of those processes differ? Um, it's a lot slow on an original. The gestational period is a lot slower. Um, you have the seed of an idea. Something happens to you. You read an article somewhere. You meet somebody who says something interesting. You, you know, anything can be the germination of, of an idea. And then in my case, anyway, I'm not sure how others do it, but I keep a story file in my email files. And, and you know, anytime I have an idea, I just park it. I write it and email to myself and park it there. And if I get more ideas on the same subject, I bust it out into its own file and keep adding to it. Um, and it's usually a couple years before I'll then decide to write that story. Um, because it's just gotta, it's just gotta sit there and, and grow for a while in your subconscious. Um, with an, with a, an adaptation, so, you know, a truck pulls up and, and puts an oak tree in your driveway and now you <laughs> You got to plant it and, and make sure it lives and turn it into an oak tree that fits in that yard. Um, it's so you've had the benefit of several years, or in some cases, several decades of someone else's thinking. So this thing shows up, and rather than using your you know powers as a creative artist, you're using your skills as an adaptive artist, and that's that's just very different. A whole bunch of thinking in the case of a novel or you know, a comic book series or a television show or whatever people adapt things from, you've got a whole bunch of thinking that shows up fully formed in that medium. And your challenge really is how might this relate to the medium of film? So you're, you got your tool belt on instead of your, uh, you know, magic wand to try to conjure something up. Right. Um, in in major projects that you've been involved in, like Jurassic Park, uh, for instance, um, the the feedback mechanism of that is uh, how does that different from the feedback you get as a novelist? For instance, um, when a when a movie comes out like that, you, you generally have two or three hours and the the initial feedback starts coming in after two or three hours. If you have a novel, um, it may be more like a week or so as people digest the work. And um, and usually it's it's individual people uh, as opposed to large groups of people that are consuming it at a time. Um, what is it, What does that feel like when when you have done all of the work you can on this thing and it now goes out into the world? What, what is the difference in in getting you know waiting for that initial feedback for a movie as opposed to that initial feedback for uh, a novel. The the first thing that springs to mind is that there's there's no difference because my friend John Camps, who's a writer and very funny, says anytime he writes anything, including just one graceful sentence, um, he starts the clock waiting for the praise train to pull into the station. <laughs> Um, 
we all want everybody to, to, to see our stuff or read our stuff and tell us how much they loved it and how it changed their life. You know, that's, sure. that's what we're looking for. Every novelist, every screenwriter, every artist is a youngest just waiting to be praised. Um, so there's that. Um, specifically to what you asked, there's there's an immediacy to a, a movie, to a movie reaction, especially a movie that's going to be in theaters. This is changing, of course, but, um, you know, a movie opens, it opens on a certain weekend. If it's a popular movie, lots of people go. You can go yourself and listen and watch and see how they react. So... It was very immediate. Um, I don't know any novelist who sits and watches someone read their book. Uh, you, you, as you pointed out, it takes a while, and the reactions come in over time and from individuals. And so, but like everything in the in the book world, you you need patience. It takes a long time to write a book. It takes a long time to edit. It takes a long time for it to then come out, and it takes a while for people to react. So, right. Um, I do. I do love the rush of of being able to watch a movie with an audience if it's playing well. If the movie doesn't really work, it's it's torture and it's the <laughs> most masochistic thing you can possibly do um, is go watch it with an audience. But the um, but that's also changing because uh, you know movies are now uh, often straight for directly for streaming. Um, right. The last movie I did was called Kimmy. Uh, it's a suspense thing for HBO Max that Steven Soderbergh directed, and it plays great. Um, but I, I've seen it with a group once or twice because I took it to a couple film festivals, and it plays great. But the primary audience for that is sitting on their living room couch, and I can't go look through their windows. <laughs> that Legal. that uh, legally, right, right. That that could uh, raise some eyebrows. Uh, David, you you mentioned um, when you're writing uh, an original script that the gestational period is different, and I, I love that terminology. Um, it it's very pregnant with um, uh, with meaning, if you will, um, if you'll pardon the pun. Um, is the is, is that the same for writing a novel? Does do the ideas come from the same place? Sorry, I interrupted you. I wanted to say that's just running with a metaphor. I respect. <laughs> oh man, do, do novel ideas come in the same way that screenplay ideas come? Uh, yes, I think so. I think that all, yeah, I think all ideas are kind of born equal, and then it's up to you to decide where does this belong. Yeah. Uh, thankfully, we live in a world where there are an increasing number of ways to tell your story. You know, I had an idea for a story a couple of years ago that I wrote, and it was about uh, probably 60 pages of prose. Okay. Which is far too long for a short story, far too short for a novel. Right. But I felt I had told the whole story. Um, it also wasn't particularly suited to a, to a movie. So, um, so I sold it to Audible. Um, which was great. Kevin Bacon read it. It's about a two-hour story. I got some very nice feedback on it, um, and I was I was delighted that there's that there's a there's a medium for this story. Um, exactly. Yeah, it's 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 a blossoming world in that regard, and people do seem to have an endless appetite for storytelling. Hello, everyone. 
My name is Grace, and I am the cafe manager over here at the Storycraft Cafe. I'm here to personally invite you to come check out the Storycraft Cafe if you haven't already been by. There is so much happening in the cafe this month. We are running live events with authors, doing group writing sprints, and talking a lot about the ins and outs of writing, the joys and the woes. If this sounds like fun, stop by for a cozy digital beverage at storycraft.cafe. That's S-T-O-R-Y-C-R-A-F-T dot C-A-F-E. I can't wait to see you all there. Things We Never Got Over, the new book by best-selling author Lucy Score. Bearded bad boy Barber Knox refers to live his life the way he takes his coffee, alone, unless you count his basset hound Waylon. Knox doesn't tolerate drama even when it comes in the form of a stranded runaway bride. Naomi wasn't just running away from her wedding. She was riding to the rescue of her estranged twin to knock him out Virginia, a rough around the edges town where disputes are settled the old-fashioned way, with fist and beer, usually in that order. Too bad for Naomi, her evil twin hasn't changed at all. After helping herself to Naomi's car and cash, Tina leaves her with something unexpected the niece Naomi didn't know she had. Now she's stuck in town with no car, no job, no plan, and no home with an 11-year-old going on 30 to take care of. There's a reason Knox doesn't do complications or high-maintenance women, especially not the romantic ones. But since Naomi's life imploded right in front of him, the least he can do is help her out of her jam. And just as soon as she stops getting into new trouble, he can leave her alone and get back to his peaceful, solitary life. At least that's the plan until the trouble turns to real danger. Things We Never Got Over, the new book by best-selling author, Lucy Score. An Innocent Client, the first book in the Joe Dillard legal thriller series. A preacher is found brutally murdered in a Tennessee motel room. A beautiful, mysterious young girl is accused. In this best-selling debut, criminal defense lawyer Joe Dillard has become jaded over the years as he's tried to balance his career against his conscience. Savvy but cynical, Dillard wants to quit doing criminal defense, but he can't resist the chance to represent someone who might actually be innocent. His drug-addicted sister has just been released from prison, and his mother is succumbing to Alzheimer's, but Dillard's commitment to the case never wavers despite the personal troubles and professional demands that threaten to destroy him. Chosen by BookBub readers as one of the top 100 crime novels of all time, get started on this great series with an innocent client where it all started. Read for free with Kindle Unlimited or buy it in paperback or audiobook. An Innocent Client by Scott Pratt. Well, it's interesting because, um, I, you know, audiobooks had been around forever, you know, back to books on tape uh, and even before that radio dramas. Uh, so there's always been this sort of medium that lends itself to to that sort of um, uh, production, uh, I guess. But but over the last five years, probably audiobooks have just exploded and and I've wondered, you know, what that is. Is it because uh, we all have these phones in our pocket with a lot of storage and easy ways to download those from Audible? And, you know, uh, headphones are, are so light and available. Uh, do, do you attribute this kind of 
boom in the in the audio uh, form of story storytelling to anything in particular? The very things you mentioned. I think that it's um, it's easy to play them. Yeah. Um, and you know, I used to I used to get uh, there was a thing called books on tape back in the early nineties, late eighties. Yeah. Uh, books on tape. This is only one books on tape. And I, <laughs> I used to drive around, but if uh, I lived in LA when I was younger, and so there's a lot of driving involved, and I'd have a case with you know eight cassette tapes that contained whatever book on tape I was listening to, um, and then later there'd be DVDs, and then there were no more books on tape. Um, not DVDs, there'd be CDs, audio CDs. Right. Um, and but it was a pain in the ass, and you know it's a lot of things to lug around with you and then what do you do with it once you listen to it throw it out you can't record over them um so suddenly in the last or not so suddenly but recently it's become incredibly easy um and i listen to i i both buy the audiobook and buy the regular book because i want to read it in my hands but i would also like to continue it when i drive home from dropping a kid off at school or I go jogging or I go for a long walk. I want to, I want to be able to continue the story. Um, so, and, and, and it became easy to do so. So I, I think I'm the author's best friend. Sometimes I buy it a third time for my iPad. <laughs> in bed. Well, it, it's interesting because, um, you know, for preparing for this, uh, show we a, a lot of times we'll get an arc from the publisher an advanced readers copy um, and you know either in, in, as a physical book or you know Kindle editions you know over the last you know several years have kind of exploded and that makes it very easy to manage large you know amounts of books coming in uh, but increasingly more uh, publishers are sending audio arcs and man does that make it wonderful for preparing for shows because you can be doing other things while you've got headphones in listening to the book you know and and it it really allows you to multitask and uh that, so you know as someone who has been in the medium of, of visual storytelling from you know writing um screenplays to also writing novels and now maybe even writing things that that you have in mind that this will make a great audio adaptation um you know what what other frontiers can you you know keep exploring as a storyteller well that's a good question i feel like i feel like <clears throat> the frontiers are infinite within the media media that we have at our disposal already um you can make up any kind of story you like i'm not so good at predicting what the next form of storytelling will be and when I've become convinced that I am, I'm usually wrong. Uh, <laughs> I, I remember in the mid '90s there was a great panic uh, in the Writers Guild because uh, interactive CD-ROMs were going to be the next big thing. Oh and yeah, everybody's going to want this. Everybody's going to want to be able to choose their own story path. You've got to be able to write a story that has eight paths and figure all those out. And in fact, <laughs> it turned out no one wants that. No one. Right. That seems like a lot of work. What they yeah. would like is for you to tell one story competently. That's all they ask. Right. Not eight poorly that they have to work on. Um, but it, it was a genuine fear at the time. Is this where it's all going? Um, 
I don't think it changes that very much for how even how much it changes. The stories still have to have a beginning, middle, and end. Uh, they generally follow three acts. Uh, even you know television series, they generally follow three acts, and that's the what you got to come up with. And there's a number of ways to tell that. Right. Uh, Links, formats, and media. If you read a um, a screenplay and and then read uh, a novelization of that screenplay, um, they they read very differently. the The screenplay is very dialogue heavy, um, with almost no um, description. Or, or there will be description, but it's very to the point. And um, and uh, is it really gives direction for the the director and other people involved in the process to interpret that and and to to do all of the visual things that we're going to see on the screen whereas if you're reading the novelization of that it is your job as the writer to build that world uh, if you will um when when writing well first off when when would you decide that you know this is going to be a screenplay or a novel? Do you start thinking about those differences in the way you're going to tell the story and what you are going to tell the reader? Oh, certainly. Just the way you would drive differently on an interstate and a country road, um, you you do you, you have to you must bring a different style to 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 each format. Um, I dispute your point a little in in that. Good screenplays aren't dialogue heavy. They have just the right amount of dialogue and they should contain a, a fair amount of description. But as you point out, that description needs to be terse and really evocative. You have to choose your words sparingly and they really got to mean something. Um, they are they are hard to read screenplays. You're You're asking a writer to imagine a scene. You're not laying it out in lovely prose for them. You're describing things and asking them to move through this at about the pace at which a movie would move past their eyes, right? Uh, the old credo is a screenplay page is usually equal to about a minute of screen time. And for the most part, that holds true. Um, so you as a screenwriter need to amend your style to keep it Hemingway-esque so that your so that the the reader can get through these pages and not get bogged down. You know, when you turn a page in a script and you see that the next page has zero dialogue but five long paragraphs of description, it's just a terrible feeling. It's very depressing, <laughs> and it's hard to go on. Um, so that that kind of terse screenwriting style, um, terse yet evocative, is is really important and i think that I, I work hard on that and sometimes i think that my style being fairly easy to read has overcome deficiencies in the story sometimes because people can stay with the movie a little bit that's not i i don't do i don't have deficient stories on purpose and hopefully i go back and fix them but um that's a that's a that's a crucial difference um, our online community, the Storycraft Cafe, uh, we're talking a lot this month about character development. And um, it, looking back on your your previous screen work and then looking at Aurora, your new novel, um, the characters are very front and center. Uh, you know, it's, it's the old adage, you can have 
um, all of the plot uh, in the world and dynamic things happen. But if you don't have characters that people care about, then none of that matters. Um, are, are there things that, that you have in mind when you start uh, imagining characters and, and start casting the story in your mind? Uh, if 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 you'll um, if that analogy is OK, uh, are there things that you think about about how you're going to make this character so that the the reader or the viewer um, will will buy in and will care about this character? Oh, certainly. Um, to me, the, the, that's the joy of writing books, is that is the opportunity to delve more deeply into character. Um, certainly, we all know movies where characters are deeply expressed and beautifully performed, and we, and we, connect, we connect with them. But in a book, you really, I, as a writer, I find I get to meet the character more and more as I go on. Um, <clears throat> so I outline less when I write a book than I would for a screenplay, because... Um, I'm trying to meet the character where they are and let them grow and let them make some decisions, not in some weird way where I'm channeling anybody. But, you know, as you write, you you come to you're pulling things out of yourself because every character is basically you, um, even the bad guys. They're they're you as you wish you could be, probably. <laughs> um, so you're pulling things out of yourself and and hopefully when those things are true, people will relate to them. When um, well, you talked about that gestational period um, when, when you're writing um, a screenplay that, that's new and and you, you said that the, the same beginning of the process happens when you're writing a novel. Um, what comes first for you? Do the characters come first? Do you start, um, it, it, you know, some is it I, I'm I'm fascinated by the beginnings of things, you know, at one moment. Um, a, a project like Aurora doesn't exist whatsoever. Um, but then either you read, you know, a news article or, or see something on television and, or, or something happens and that what if game starts playing in your head. And then, you know, either characters walk onto the stage of your mind or you start, you know, casting this this what if scenario with people. And then in in one way or another, Aurora does exist. And then it's your job as the writer to kind of dig that story out and and polish it up and and all of that all the things that make it into a story. Um, what comes first for you? Is is it the characters? Is it a situation? How does that usually unfold? I would love to say the character comes first because I feel like that's what the great writers of books and movies <laughs> say and have experienced. But it's not the case for me. I I get an idea. I think probably one of the most influential. Um, things uh, shows for me and many writers of my generation is the twilight zone uh, yes twilight zones and those are all based on a great what if idea um and i've always been deeply charmed by a what if idea and then but quickly on the heels of the what if idea i think now who is either the best or the worst person to have this happen to um i don't want anybody in between i want somebody who's uh, completely prepared for this and we watch them handle it or they're completely unprepared for this and we watch them not handle this and so in the case of aurora i thought well what about one of each uh and let's see how their paths may may uh diverge or come together so we get the sister who is completely unprepared for uh this disaster and her extremely wealthy brother who is 
totally overprepared and then watch their paths cross. <laughs> cross is a is a fun way of putting it. Um, at at its heart, well, uh, Aurora, when you first look at it, looks like a a disaster novel. It's it's um, and and it is creepily uh, relevant today uh, because you know with rising gas prices and a lot of uncertainty at, at various places in the world and and the possibility of of some of these uh, things affecting us on a on a daily basis seem to seem to be ratcheting up and it's very plausible. Um, but at the heart of it, you know, that, while while that's happening in Aurora and it, it's very believable. What's really happening is a story about uh, two siblings, li- like you said, and and the uh, kind of the the world coming to an end story, if you will, uh, is really just a backdrop for this the sibling story. Uh, how did the the idea for uh, to kind of have this brother and sister who are very different and and coming uh, at this situation from very different places? Yet having that sibling bond and this thing that holds them together, that that makes for a fascinating exploration of, uh, you know, this sort of end of the world story. Um, how did how did that idea to to have this family connection? Uh, wh- where did that come from? Well, I knew early on the 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 idea of the uh, you know a coronal mass ejection from the sun that knocks out uh, power all over the globe. That's that that's that's the idea that underlines the book, right? Or that starts the book. And I knew early on I can't write what's going on in the whole world, and I don't want to. Right. Um, it'll be some sprawling disaster thing that we've seen a million times. So um, I thought, how I want I want to tell this story, but the only way to tell it successfully, in my opinion, is to narrow its focus. Uh, and and I'm helped by the fact that. Since power's out, communications are out. No one can watch TV and look for updates. No one can call their friend and ask what's going on. Nobody can go on the internet and see what's going on and see YouTube from all over the world. So everything becomes extremely local very quickly. Very quickly. And that helps me um, because now I can study the way these two separate communities, one the sisters community and the other the wealthy brothers self-made community, um, I can watch these two communities and see how they come together or fall apart. And, you know, I think that approach of taking a ground level personal view to a massive worldwide event is, is not unique to me. I mean, H.G. Wells did a similar thing in his War of the Worlds novel. Um, that makes it all seem much more real and relatable. And then you never have to have a shot of, you know, the Eiffel Tower burning or something, um, which I think is, uh, people people are have seen enough of that kind of thing right what's interesting is um I, i've talked to to thriller writers and um uh people that write those sorts of stories that have uh resorted to setting stories back in the 70s and 80s before a lot of technology um, has evolved the way it is now for the simple fact that it's harder and harder to tell stories where someone all, all they have to do is pick up a cell phone and and call for help or you know text someone and or you know use GPS tracking and you know so when you remove that technology 
all of a sudden your storytelling becomes very different. Um, you mentioned that in the story it goes from a, a very broad worldwide uh, scenario to very local very quickly. Um, what did that do for you to be able to remove all of the distractions of modern life and get right down to the heart of the character? It's just a gift. <laughs> it was <laughs> it, it the fact that not only can someone just text someone else when they're upset with them, but they do and they would instead right. of going and finding them and talking to them. Um, it's 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 a it's a pox, you know, to write to write a book or a film where you don't have to think about somebody's phone, and or if you're making a film, you don't have to shoot inserts of a phone or or a computer. It's just it's so boring. It's our daily life. We all love it and hate it profoundly. Um, and to put it in our art and our and entertainment is is sad. So having the power go out was just fantastic. Somebody's got a cell, somebody's got a satellite phone and it happens to work, but they were limited to two phone calls in the whole story, I think. So that was great. Um, I wrote a story recently that said in World War II, and it was another just a just a just a joy because <laughs> you don't know where people are. They leave, they say they're going away and they'll be back soon, and you hope they come back, and then they have an adventure and they come back and they say, You won't believe what happened to me. Um, instead of texting you every every step of the way, OMG, these Nazis hate them. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, it's uh, yeah, it's a it's a real. It calls figuring out how does this character not use their phone is as big a writing challenge these days as the old thriller challenge of why don't they call the police? Right, right. Um, how did the, the sibling relationship come to you? Because the, that's a, a very interesting dynamic between these characters. Um, they're they're not near to each other geographically, but they are connected, uh, you know, um, genetically in, in this this and not only genetically, but there, there's a, a, a familial um, connection between them. How did the decision to write that? relationship uh come about i think because it's an intense relationship and it's not a romantic one um and because they were going to be apart for the vast majority of the story um not having a romantic relationship at the heart of the story seemed like a good idea because uh, then they could each have a romantic relationship that'll work or not on their own um and i just i just felt like uh, two people who are united not only by genetics and upbringing, but by this tragic incident that occurred during their teenage years uh, was very interesting to me. I can't say why it came up or how it came up. Uh, it just did. And that's kind of part of the mystery of it. Sorry you know, for that one. <laughs> Do you, um, when, when you're writing a story uh, like this, David, does uh does the topic of writing a standalone versus a series, um, does that, or I'm, I'm sure it does factor in at some point, but where does that usually factor into your writing process? Um, I, I early, uh, because I firmly believe that you, you really have to write one thing that works before you dare consider anything else. 
Um, and so I, I try very hard to focus on the thing in front of me and how do I make that a full and complete story? And if it turns out it can go on or a, a character in it can go on or there's some aspect of it that can go on, great. And if the world seems to want that and I have the energy and ideas for it, great. But I think, uh, I'm sure some authors consider that right away and early on and go on to have a great successful series. I don't have that capacity. I, I feel overwhelmed enough by by telling one good story that I try to focus on just that. <laughs> Aurora is uh, is available everywhere now. Um, when you're hearing this uh, in in Kindle edition or hardcover or audiobook, we, we talked about audiobooks earlier. David, have you heard any of the the um, the production of this book? Yes, it's terrific. Uh, Rupert Friend, the actor Rupert Friend, read it um, beautifully. He read my first novel, Cold Storage, as well. Um, and uh, I think it's terrific. I, I recommend buy the hardcover, buy the audiobook, uh, <laughs> and it on your Kindle as well, because, you know, why not? That's you know, my first well, you know, you, you need to, to have that uh, that Kindle edition so you can just pop it out when you're waiting at the doctor or, or whatever as well. So, so I, I endorse that uh, 100%. Um, Aurora, available everywhere now. David, if people are just discovering you and want to dig into all the great stuff that you are presently doing and, and, and have done in the past, um, where can they find you online? Uh, I'm on Instagram, uh, DGCap on Instagram, or just type in my name. Um, I also, if you're interested in, in screenplays, uh, I have um, a website, davidkep.com, uh, where I have a script archive of about 30 years of drafts that I uploaded. They're free. Have a look if you like. And it sort of keeps you posted on my various other uh, activities. <clears throat> so check it out. Fantastic. Aurora, available everywhere now. Go grab it today at your local bookstore or uh, on Amazon. Uh, David, this has been so much fun chatting. Thank you so much for taking time to come on the show. Thank you, Hank. It was a pleasure.